Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 30 for the second quarter of April 2012. Last episode, I talked for a while about the basic evidence for why the asteroid belt could not have been a planet. I got probably more feedback in the first few days of releasing that episode than any before that, which I'll address after the main segment. But for now, let's assume that I was right, and that at least one of the four reasons I talked about last time is valid for why the asteroid belt could not have been a planet. This episode is going to focus more on debunking Tom Van Flanderen's ideas for the asteroid belt as an exploding planet. He's probably the one who most formalized the whole exploding planet idea. Tom Van Flanderen was a perfectly mainstream astronomer for many years before he went, what many might consider, a bit nuts. And he bought onto the whole idea of an exploding planet and faces on Mars and other things. This exploding planet idea is basically the idea that a fully formed, or more than one fully formed planet, existed in the region of space now occupied by the asteroid belt, and that it exploded, the debris of which being today's asteroid belt. Van Flanderen also hooked up with Richard Hoagland and bought onto all of the Mars anomaly stuff, which I will get to in future episodes. Like Richard Hoagland, I don't honestly know if Van Flandern believes what he says, or what he said. He sounds convincing in interviews. However, I heard from a co-worker who knew Van Flandern and was very good friends with him that Tom stated he didn't really believe any of the stuff that he was saying. He said it knowing that it was all likely wrong, but on the very off chance that in a hundred years it would be found to be correct, he wanted to get credit for it. This particular co-worker said that I could not use his, or her, name, and it's really only an anecdote, so I'll say again what I said of Richard Hoagland in episode 26. I don't know if he actually believed the stuff that he said, but other people do, and that's reason enough to get into it. Van Flanderen died in 2009 after living a fairly long life and giving several fairly long interviews on Coast to Coast AM. Some of the clips I'll play for you in this episode. It's been a while since I've played Coast to Coast clips. It's usually best to start at the beginning, and in this case, that would be with planet formation. Van Flanderen had an interesting idea about planet formation. That is, the fission idea whereby the sun spins really, 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 really fast, and globs get spit out that become planets. That, in itself, deserves yet another separate episode, so I'm not really going to get into that idea here. But it's important for context because of Van Flanderen's twist. He says that instead of a single blob getting thrown out from the sun, you know, blob now, million years, another blob, that instead, pairs of blobs get spit out in a biaxially symmetric blob-spitting thing. Now, why you'd have biaxial symmetry, so you get two blobs as opposed to triaxial, getting three blobs, or quadraxial, or a ring, or something like that, I don't know, and he's not around for me to ask. But anyway, his scenario paints a picture of the original solar system where there were 12 planets. Not unlike Zechariah Sitchin's ideas, but 
only really similar in number. Altogether, if we count all the evidence, strong and weak, uh, there is evidence that the solar system started out with 12 planets, uh, and of, of those original 12, only six remain today. And that oh uh, three of our uh, of the objects we now call planets uh, are actually escaped moons from other planets. Uh, so Mercury uh, is analogous to um, Mercury is to Venus as our moon is to Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mercury started life as a moon of Venus and then escaped. Uh, Mars is apparently an, an escaped moon of one of the of that planet that exploded between Mars and Jupiter. And Pluto is apparently an escape moon of Neptune. How we got to our current situation has to do with planets exploding. Specifically, Van Flandern thinks that planets could explode in any combination of three possible ways. The following is a fairly long clip, but I think that it's important to understand, or at least to hear, Van Flandern's ideas as he puts them forward rather than me summarizing them. The simplest one to say in a few words is the uh, is what's called changes of state. Uh, it means that when you change the temperature or pressure of things, uh, say water, uh, you get a new state like ice or steam. Right. Um, and if that happens inside a planet, uh, the, the temperature or pressure changes, and you reach a critical point, uh, you can change uh, something uh, inside the planet from one state to another, and that usually means a change of volume. So the planet will then either collapse if the volume inside is smaller or it will uh, expand explosively. Um, So that one we can say in a few words. Also, the second idea can be said fairly briefly, too, and that is that there uh, there is such a thing as a natural fission reactor we, in fact, we found one on Earth uh, over over in Gabon, uh, in Africa. Uh, there is a place where we found uh, uh, radioactive nuclides uh, that indicate there was a natural fission uh, reactor operating in that area. The, the going theory is that uh, uranium was leached from rocks by flowing water and uh, got caught, uh, reached a point where it collected in, in a dam somewhere and reached a critical mass. Um, uh, but that's, the point is that, that that's, we already know that such a thing exists because we, we've seen evidence here, right here on Earth. But if you extend that idea to what may be going on in the cores of planets, where there's probably a lot of uranium and, and other heavy elements, mm-hmm. Uh, that leads to another possible energy source and mechanism for planets to explode. Uh, the third one is the, the most plausible of the three, but probably all three mechanisms are active. Uh, but the third one came out of our understanding of the uh, origin and nature of gravity that has evolved in the last four, four or five years. And that's quite different than the old idea. Uh, it's called pushing gravity, which is a strange name if you haven't heard of it before. Uh, but it, it's, uh, it can be best described this way. Uh, we, we know that there are air molecules around us all the time, even though we can't see them. Well, there are even smaller things in this theory filling the whole universe called gravitons. They're much smaller even than atoms or uh, any quantum particle. And there's a constant stream of, uh, of them bombarding us from all directions all the time, just as air molecules are. 
but all over the universe. And these are called gravitons. And if there are any two bodies out in isolated in space, uh, some of the, more of the gravitons will hit them on the outside than the uh, than between them, because they'll shadow each other from some gravitons. So to summarize, his three main possible ways to explode a planet are one, a phase change causes a rapid change in volume that creates enough pressure to explode a planet, two. A nuclear reaction explodes the planet. Or three, magic streaming gravitons. The first scenario, the phase change, has the problem of there simply not being a mechanism to do this. It's kind of like a geographic pole shift. It's fun to say it, but when you actually get to trying to find a mechanism to do it, you come up empty. That's really the scenario here. There's no known mechanism nor energy source that could vaporize enough material, or any material for that matter, to explode a planet from the inside. And actually, the second scenario has the same problem. Yes, there is evidence for isolated fission reaction on Earth due to an abnormally high concentration of natural nuclear material that the planet formed with. But the ball remains squarely in Van Flanderen's court, or whomever wants to carry the torch, or the ball, or whatever metaphor we want to use since he's dead, in order to show that enough of this could occur in many planets' cores that could cause several solar system planets to explode. Which brings us to the third mechanism, magic streaming gravitons that planets can shield each other from that I guess causes them to maybe push together and collide and explode. Now, this is another case where all because he says it, does not mean that I need to find a way to debunk it. It falls so far outside of the realm of any known science that he needs to supply the evidence for it rather than me spending hours explaining why it doesn't make sense. It's kind of like if I were to say, oh, well, the Large Hadron Collider is going to spit out a magical flying unicorn that farts rainbows. Debunk it. What I've claimed is so far outside of the realm of any known science that it's up to me to provide the evidence for it rather than for someone else to try to debunk it from first principles. Which brings us to the present-day evidence part, which will comprise the rest of the main segment of this episode. After all, you can spout out whatever ideas you want, but if there's no evidence for it that can be found, then it should sit on the fiction shelf without anyone paying heed. Fortunately for me, much of the evidence that Van Flanderen and others point to has to do with Mars. I spent the last six years studying Mars and doing both my master's and doctoral dissertations on Martian craters. And one of the main lines of evidence that Van Flanderen points to is Martian craters. So to give you the relevant background information, Mars is the planet between Earth and the asteroid belt, and Van Flanderen thinks that Mars was one of two moons of planet V. The planet blew up 65 million years ago, creating most of the asteroid belt. The other moon of planet V, because remember, not only planets spit out from the sun in pairs, but moons get spit out from planets in pairs. So this other moon that also orbited planet V blew up about 3.2 million years ago, according to Van Flanderen. Now, one of the main lines of evidence for this is Mars' heavily cratered southern hemisphere. 
For those who don't know, Mars is an interesting planet. Roughly speaking, the northern half of it is fairly smooth and shows relatively few craters. The southern half is topographically higher by a few kilometers, kind of similar to Earth's ocean floors for the northern plains versus Earth's continents for the southern highlands. And the southern highlands are heavily cratered. To give you a very, very rough idea, if we counted up all of the craters larger than one kilometer in the northern hemisphere lowlands, there are about 60,000 versus somewhere around 320,000 in the southern highlands. But if you use data other than imagery, such as topography or crustal thickness maps, then you can find many large craters in similar number to those in the southern hemisphere. To planetary geologists, this generally would indicate that the northern hemisphere was similar to the southern hemisphere, but something happened to bury it. Now, another feature of the northern hemisphere is the thickness of the crust, the crust being the upper layer of the planet. In the northern hemisphere, it's significantly thinner, something like 20 kilometers thick versus 70 kilometers thick in the highlands. The prevailing hypothesis to explain this is that a very large impact very early in the planet's history, like 4.4 billion years ago, impacted the northern part of the planet and caused a giant crater and thinned the crust. Other people have suggested things like an ocean or mantle plume, similar to how the Hawaiian islands are made, but on a much larger scale. So I'm not going to say that the state of the science is that we know why the northern plains are the way they are in contrast with the southern highlands, but we have some pretty good ideas that do fit the available evidence. Van Flanderen, however, explains it with an exploding planet. In their theory, they've got to say the, the damaged hemisphere was the smooth one uh, and that the cratered hemisphere was normal. They base that on the fact that the moon and uh, uh, lots of other bodies in the solar system are cratered all over, so that looks normal to them. And they actually use crater counts as a way to estimate ages. So that's why they can claim that this all happened 4 billion years ago. But uh, there's another alternative. Uh, when the explosion happens, it's just going to blast one side of the moon. Uh, and the backside, of course, is protected right. from the impacts. And that's just what we see with Mars. One side blasted, the other side uh, protected. There are several problems with this, which brings us to the puzzler from the last episode. Now, Chu suggested one problem with this scenario would be that the debris would not all arrive at Mars at the same time, and so the impact craters would not be confined to one half of it. This goes somewhat in hand with Parrott's later answer that the vast distances between objects in space would have the debris be so diffuse by the time that they would hit Mars that you wouldn't get such a large difference. I suppose this could be correct if Mars, as a moon of planet V, were orbiting pretty far away. But really, the problem with this gets more to the timescales involved, or timescales suggested by Van Flanderen. Mars' surface is old. There's really no easy way to get around that. From basic dynamics and what we know from the moon, the vast majority of Mars craters formed more than 3 billion, not 65 million, years ago. The whole idea of crater age dating is yet another episode, so I won't go really into it much here. 
But there are at least two ways to think about this to independently demonstrate that the craters need to be old and the northern plains need to be relatively young. The first is to simply look at them. Young craters look sharp, fresh, have well-defined rims, clean floors, and ejecta blankets. Most of the craters in the northern hemisphere look like this, well over half of them in fact. Some in the southern hemisphere look like this. Only two of the large craters, and here I'm talking about the 200-kilometer diameter Lowell Crater in the southern hemisphere, and the 222-kilometer Lyo, or Leo, crater in the northern hemisphere. These are the only two big ones that really look fresh. And my recent work that I'll be submitting to a journal in about three weeks or so, hopefully, hopefully sooner... Anyway, my recent work, age dating them, puts them at about 3.8 and 3.5 billion years old, respectively. But again, you can ignore the age values and just look at how fresh they are. If the northern hemisphere is supposed to be older in Van Flandern's model, then it's the southern hemisphere that should have the vast majority of fresh-looking craters. It doesn't. The second line of reasoning is to argue from the standpoint of what we see on Earth's moon. We see a lot of craters, pretty much everywhere in the moon, except in the dark regions which are called maria, plural, or mare, singular, from the Latin meaning sea or seas. I have not seen Van Flanderen nor anyone else claim that the moon experienced anything significantly negative from planet V's or the moon Valona's blowing up. So we could consider our moon's cratering record as indicative of what an inner solar system object should have experienced over the last about 4.5 billion years in terms of the cratering record. What looks most similar to the moon? Mars' southern hemisphere, not the northern. It's the southern hemisphere of Mars that seems to show a cratering record indicative of what a surface that hasn't been significantly altered in the past 4 billion years looks like, as opposed to the northern hemisphere, which does. I don't think at this point that I need to invoke Occam's razor, but I will. The standard model, as I've explained it, can explain what we see of Mars much better than the exploding planet one, and the standard model introduces the least amount of new information, so it's more likely to be accurate. Another bit of evidence, fairly minor one, that Van Flanderen claims is craters on the Earth. The 165 million years ago, um, it, that was in the orbit of Mars, and it's the one that freed Mars uh, that was a, a moon of that planet and, and to its own orbit. But it, that explosion did enough damage uh, that, uh, that the Earth felt the impact of it too. And uh, that, of course, uh, on Earth, Things tra- changed drastically at that time. That's when all the dinosaurs died. But 70% of all species were wiped out. There was a single global fire. We've already discovered not just the big Chicxulub uh, impact in the Yucatan Peninsula, but uh, 15 different uh, major craters over the Earth all were associated with the same time period. To say that this is wrong is about as far as I really think I need to go. Again, I study impact craters. I'll link up to the Global Impact Crater Database for Earth in the show notes that has age estimates for the roughly 180 identified craters on the planet. In it, I see two that date to roughly 65 million years ago. There are none 
indicated as dating from exactly 3.2 million years ago, although there are two that do have error bars that overlap 3.2 million years ago. I know he's dead, so it's not entirely fair for me to say this, but the onus really is on him, or someone who wants to carry that torch or ball or, again, whatever metaphor we want to use, to come up with the evidence and not just make it up. Unfortunately for him, this is kind of my field of study, and I knew as soon as I heard it that he was making this claim up. Or he was just sorely mistaken. And not to seem to really end this topic when it seems like we may have just gotten started and only really addressed two or three claims, but that's about it. I'll link up to Van Flanderen's still active meta-research website in the show notes, but really, that's about all there is to the exploding planet idea. There are some more smaller details here and there, but really it's the Mars crater stuff that's usually highlighted, and he's just wrong about it. Mars' cratering record is pretty clear that it was the northern plains that were resurfaced, not the southern hemisphere that was blasted by debris 65 million years ago. I suppose I could get into that one bit I heard one time, I think by Richard Hoagland, that Saturn's moon Iapetus is evidence for this kind of exploding planet scenario. Iapetus is the moon where one half is bright snow and the other dark as asphalt, and Hoagland says that this is evidence for the exploded planet blasting Iapetus also. Now, besides us actually having an explanation for Iapetus's dichotomy with that has nothing really to do with exploded planets, the explanation being that it's due to material left after ice sublimates away, it leaves the question of why would Iapetus be the only moon out of the hundred or so around Jupiter and Saturn to show this? One out of more than a hundred. So it's inconsistent, although inconsistency has never really stopped Richard Hoagland. So in the end, the exploded planet idea for the origin of the asteroid belt is the stuff of fiction. It's still used as plot devices in stories and movies, but it really shouldn't be if you want to represent the real science. There are other ways to get your story across. As usual with these even quarter episodes, the Puzzler and Q&A will return with next episode. In this case, the next episode is going to be on the photographic lines of evidence or reasoning for the Apollo moon hoax. If you happen to have a good idea for a Puzzler, please let me know. Now in terms of feedback, as I said at the beginning, I got a lot of correspondence related to the asteroid belt being a planet, so I'll go somewhat in order of the feedback. Now, pretty much everything that I heard back from people was related to two of the four lines of evidence that I pointed to for why we know that the asteroid belt is not, or was not, an exploded planet. The first that I pointed to was mass. Bruce pointed out on my blog, quote, In your mass volume calculation, you haven't included Saturn's adenids or irregular satellites as possible capture debris, nor have you done any work on percentages of remaining solid matter or material after explosions, end quote. Bruce also quoted from Wikipedia that many of the gas giant's moons are likely to be captured asteroids or comets. Now, my response is that this is true. 
I did not include any outer planet moons in the calculation, but the numbers would not really change much. First, you would need to exclude all of the regular satellites, which are also the largest. Around Jupiter, those are the Galilean ones, Io, or Eo if you're British, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Around Saturn, that would be Titan. All of these regular satellites display no characteristics of being captured, and it's almost certain that they formed with the planet that they orbit. The mass of all of the other moons barely equals one of these, and so we still have a mass issue of there not being enough material remaining to make a giant planet that Mars would have orbited, let alone two giant planets, which is what Van Flandern proposes. Rybert also wrote on my blog, pointing out a paper showing that the mass in the region where the solar system was forming of the asteroid belt was equivalent to about Earth, or so. Now, over donuts on Friday morning, I talked with three dynamicists who study the asteroid belt. I asked them how much mass there was when it was forming, and they all said, no one knows. So if you take a minimum mass solar nebula, which is basically the minimum amount of material that you need to form the solar system as we now know it, and this is from a basic physics argument, there were roughly a few times Earth's mass over that entire region. And if Jupiter took a while to form, then it's entirely possible that you could have planetary nuclei-sized objects forming in the region of the asteroid belt that were later ejected or one or two remain, like Ceres and Vesta. Now, I should clarify terms here. A planetary nucleus is something that's probably a few hundred kilometers across. We're not talking about something the size of Jupiter, or Saturn here, which, again, I'll emphasize, is what Van Flanderen is claiming. The core of Jupiter is estimated to be something like 20 times the size of Earth. So, it's possible that some series-sized or larger protoplanets did form where the asteroid belt is now. But, once Jupiter did form, it's a very difficult situation to have anything that large continue to grow. And it's likely that you'll eject several of them due to resonances with Jupiter. Now, the second line of evidence that I pointed to was differentiation where the largest asteroids have separated out somewhat by density, which I said means that they couldn't have been fragments of an exploded planet. Caffeine from the SGU message boards pointed out that this was a contradiction with how we think Earth formed, where a Mars-sized object hit Earth at a glancing blow and the Moon formed from the debris in orbit. It's a contradiction, perhaps, if you think of it that way. What I was thinking about in terms of the planet exploding and Ceres and Vesta were cohesive fragments from that exploded planet. In that case, it's very different from our moon's formation, and it's not a contradiction. And Ceres and Vesta could not have been differentiated in that scenario. But if you think of it where a planet exploded and Ceres and Vesta formed effectively, quote-unquote, from scratch from those debris, then... That is somewhat the same way that we think the moon formed. Caffeine would be correct. These bodies being differentiated would not be an issue for an exploding planet origin. So we're down to three instead of four arguments or ways to show that the asteroid belt could not have been a planet. So even if you don't believe me, 
or you don't trust the state of the science, or you think that I gave a wishy-washy answer to these two points, or three points, then there's still the orbital dynamics issue. That's where the asteroid belt is dynamically stable, and we can actually track back asteroid families and figure out when some of them formed, as in they formed hundreds of millions, not thousands of years ago. This is why in these kinds of shows, I like to give several different lines of evidence or ways of thinking about these different things. I could be wrong in what I say. I encourage people to check up on me. Don't take my word for it. If I'm wrong, I'll usually own up to it. But even if I'm mistaken on these two points, they still don't discount an exploded planet for the asteroid belt's origin because there's still the dynamics argument. And... It's this idea of several lines of evidence and reasoning, but from the flip side, that I'll talk about in the next episode on the Apollo moon hoax. Hopefully that won't be a too frustrating of an episode given that it'll be talking about photographs. By way of announcements, I thought that I'd mention again that I'll be presenting at this year's Colorado Skepticamp, which again I'll link to in the show notes, which will be held on May 5th at the Parker Public Library in Parker, Colorado. I'll be giving a talk on young earth creationist arguments, what you have to believe or ignore, well, and ignore, in order to be a young earth Christian creationist. I will also be at TAM this year. This will be my first TAM. I registered not as a student, saving $100, even though I do have a valid student ID through 2014. And I will be attending the workshops and main events. Also, pens, thousand donuts and bacon party thingamajigger. I would also like to try to give one of the small, I think they're 10 or 15 minute non-workshop talks that you have to write an application for, but I haven't happened to see any of the applications for that. If anyone happens to know where it is, please let me know. But regardless, this will be an opportunity for me to meet some of you, as opposed to what other podcasters say, where it's an opportunity for you to meet me. Anyway... I will be there Wednesday night through Monday morning, and if you're interested in meeting up at all, please send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. If enough people happen to be interested, I'll look into planning on being somewhere at some specific time that I'll let you know about beforehand where we could meet up as a group. I will also try to tweet my location so you can follow me personally on Twitter as Dr. Dr. Astro Stew or the podcast as Pseudo Astro. That wraps up this topic for the 30th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also tell your friends and family. And if you don't like this podcast, don't rate it. Or, I suppose you could. And still tell your family, because they may have a different opinion. (laughs) 